All right, open your Bibles, if you have them, to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, we'll be in verse 1 and going to chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, if I could give you just a, a breakdown of the Old Testament, this will help you find Hosea. Hosea can be a harder one to find among the prophets. You have uh, the law, you have the writings, and then you have the prophets. Uh, the law consists of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses had written those through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That really provided for the children of Israel as they were entering the promised land a lens through which to view the world. It was their worldview, and so it answered the basic questions of life when it came to meaning, morality, origin, and destiny. And then you get into the writings of the Bible. You get into the history of the children of Israel. You got Joshua, Judges, Ruth. They're entering into the promised land. Uh, you've got history. You've got poetry. And then you have the prophets. The prophets can be broken down into two sections in the Old Testament. You've got the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And if you find those five, you're not too far away from Hosea because Hosea is the first of the minor prophets of 12 minor prophets, and there you will find Hosea. Sometimes folks ask, well, why are those five major prophets and then Hosea among the rest are the minor prophets? Is that because they're less important? But the reality is the reason you have the major prophets because they're larger in size, they're longer in length, but the minor prophets, they're books that are shorter in length and smaller in size. And Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. Hosea is a unique prophet among the rest. And the reason is because we know more about the personal life of Hosea than the other prophets. And the reason is because God wanted to, to be that way. Uh, God is going to use Hosea's personal life, his marriage, his children, to be the object lesson that he's going to teach them about their unfaithfulness, about his unconditional, unrelenting love for an unfaithful people. And the book of Hosea really pictures the beauty of the love of God that is fully realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as we enter into our study together in the first chapter, reading all the way to chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to consider how God confronts the children of Israel about their spiritual infidelity, their spiritual adultery, their unfaithfulness. Let's go and read Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel in the house of Jehu, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again, and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, 
but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son, then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. As we are introduced to the book of Hosea together, we're going to consider how God confronts their spiritual infidelity, how God confronts their spiritual adultery and their unfaithfulness to a God who remains faithful. It's interesting to read throughout the Old Testament, and God often uh, um, refers to his relationship with his people, both in the Old Testament and the New, as a marriage. God is the husband, especially in our text, and Israel is the wife. In this context, God is the faithful husband, Israel is the adulterous wife. In the New Testament, you read how Jesus describes his relationship with the church as the bridegroom and the bride. In, in texts like Ephesians 5.22 to 33, we see that marriage is actually a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, and, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and, and gave himself up for her. And so as we dig into our text together, that's the imagery that was going to be captured in our text, and as we consider how God confronts their spiritual infidelity, uh, we see in verse 1 that he confronts them by means of speaking to Hosea. It says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Now, that first verse tells us not just about Hosea, it tells us about the Lord. Number one, it tells us that Hosea, as a prophet, is a man who has been set apart for the purposes of God. Hosea is a man who has been set apart to receive the word of God in order that he might declare the word of God. A prophet to whom the word of the Lord has come does not have the right to speak just anything to the people of God. He can only say what God has delivered to him and what God desires to speak through him, nothing more, nothing less. A prophet who declares anything less than what God has declared or a prophet who speaks anything more than the Lord declares is what we would refer to as a false prophet. Even a prophet who speaks 99% truth, even if it's just that 1%, 99% of the truth is still a lie. Hosea is a prophet of the Lord to whom the word of the Lord has come. Uh, secondly, this doesn't just talk about Hosea, it tells us a lot about our God. Now, I think often we, as Christians, can easily take for granted the word of God that we have received. 
I mean, if you think about the time in history that we live in, we have the whole counsel of God. We've got 66 books. We've got redemptive history from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we have possibly more truth than even the prophets had in their day. We have the whole of Scripture. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they, they had a, a vision of what was to come. We know who the Messiah is. We know who Jesus is. We know who, the, who, who, who is going to rule and reign forever and ever. And that's significant. And the God who reveals himself to Hosea and speaks through Hosea a message that he has for them is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. I don't know about you, but if you wanted to have a conversation with the President of the United States, you could possibly buy a flight and go to Washington, D.C., and you could go to the gate and try to shake it a little bit. Secret Service would possibly come up to you and say, back off. And you might be able to say, hey, I'd like a meeting with the President. Or you might be able to have some connections. You've got some networking there. And you might be able to say, hey, can you get me a meeting with the President? Most likely, you won't be able to. He's a very important person. He's got a number of different things that he's doing. But the God who created heaven and earth and everything in it, you have access to his word and you have access to him in prayer and the president of the United States is accountable to him and you can talk to him any time of the day. Isn't that amazing? And the truth of the matter is God is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it, but not only is he all-powerful as the creator, he's personal and he's relational. And that should cause us to just stand back and wonder, God, as the psalmist declared in Psalm 8, who am I? That, who is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that, that you even care for him? Let me read that. Psalm 8 verse 3 says this. When I consider your heavens, your creation, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? Who are we that you would even tell us about you, yourself, in your word? And the son of man that you visit him, verse five, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And as we consider a text like that, it reminds me, and as I'm reading this, don't take the word of God for granted. Don't take our relationship with God for granted. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He is all-powerful, but he's also personal. He's also relational. We don't deserve a personal relationship with him, but through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we have one. Not only do we have a relationship with him, but if you know Jesus, you are called a son or a daughter of the king. What a unique privilege you and I have been given. And so it says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And so Hosea is described first as the man to whom the word of the Lord has come. And it says, Hosea, the son of Beiri. The word Hosea is uh, similar to Joshua, Yeshua. They all mean the same thing, salvation. Yeshua is Jesus. So Joshua, Hosea, Hosea, and Yeshua, Jesus, all mean salvation and I just think it's a wonderful thing to consider the fact that this is a message given to a people who have been unfaithful to God. And the messenger whom God has chosen is a man whose name means salvation. And even in our text, as a promise of coming judgment is going to come over the children of Israel, there's still a promise of hope for the future. 
And we're reminded that our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of salvation. Thirdly, Hosea is described as a man who lived during the reign of kings during the 8th century. Uh, We read in uh, verse 1, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So in the 8th century, the 700s BC, we know that Hosea was ministering during that time. Um, it was a unique time in Israel's history. Number one, we know that this is a time in Israel's history when the kingdoms divided. After David, Solomon, his son, ruled over the kingdom of Israel. And after Solomon came his son and the kingdom was split in two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital was Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, the capital was Jerusalem. And so Hosea is ministering during a time when there is a divided kingdom. And we know in the 8th century, he's ministering during the reigns of those kings in Judah and those kings in Israel. And his primary ministry is to the the northern kingdom. And the text told us Jeroboam, we know in history, Jeroboam II is the one who is reigning during the time in which Hosea is ministering. This is the 8th century. I want you to know in 722 BC, the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to take Israel captive. They are going to be exiled out of the land. But prior to the judgment that comes through the the, the nation of Assyria, the time in which Hosea is ministering is a very, very prosperous time. Economically speaking, the nation is blessed. Under Jeroboam II, As he is the king, he's expanding the the amount of land that belongs to the northern kingdom of Israel, and so it's a prosperous time. But although these are the best of times, these are also the worst of times. You know, if you were with us last time, we just wrapped up our study of the seven churches of Revelation. The last church was the church at Laodicea, and if you recall, their material wealth had blinded them to their spiritual poverty, And this time in Israel's history is prosperous and blessed, but they give credit not to the God of heaven and earth who gave them the promised land and blessed them immensely. They turn their back on God and worship the false idols and gods of the surrounding nations. And in their unfaithfulness and in their infidelity, they have turned their back on the living God and their material wealth has blinded them to their own spiritual poverty and Through the prophet Hosea, God is going to confront this nation with their own sin. And so how does he begin to confront them? Just by entering into verse 1, God speaks to them through the prophet Hosea. The word of the Lord comes to Hosea to confront them accordingly. I'd like to just pause here for a moment before we continue and open it up for discussion. How have you learned to get the most out of your Bible. You know, as the word of God comes to Hosea, he needs to get the most out of the word that he's received. He's going to receive it and he's going to declare it. Did you know, like Hosea, we have received the word of God, 66 books of it. I mean, it's an incredible blessing that we have access to the very word of God and we live in a unique time in history, redemptive history, where we have the completion of the canon. How do you get the most out of the Bible? Or what advice would you give to a fellow believer when you hand them a Bible and say, hey, if you don't have, how can you get the most out of the word? What would you say? 
Yeah, so actually open it and read it. So if you, if you want to get the most out of the Bible, open it up, study it. Yeah, get into it. Kevin? Okay. Yeah. So approach it with a kind of reverence to know that this is not just any book. This is the very word of God. And so that makes a difference when we open up the Bible. We're hearing direct revelation from the living God. Some people are always asking, hey, I'd love to hear from God verbally if he could just speak to me. Open up the Bible and it can go such a far ways. Yeah. Anything else? How do you get the most out of your Bible? How do you get the most out of the word of God? Teaching it, certainly. Yeah. And for Hosea, that's what he was given the word in order that the word might be spoken through him. And as you get to teach folks, especially children, you really get to know the word when you can communicate it on a level that even children can understand, right? You really have to grasp the truths of God's word when you have to communicate it. The best learners are the best teachers because you've got to master it before you can teach it to those uh, who need it. Anything else you would share? How can you get the most out of God's word? Walk in obedience to it, yeah. Live it out, certainly, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, so as you're interpreting scripture and some passages can be more difficult, getting commentaries and other resources that can take you to the Bible. A concordance can also be helpful as you take a look at different passages and say, well, what else does the Bible have to say about that? And yeah, some extra resources. Yeah, Adam. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Nothing like having your own words, you know, your own Bible. Um, I, I listed a few. I put, uh, get a copy of God's word. That's an important, if you're gonna get the most out of God's word, get a copy of it. Now, today we have access to God's word more than ever. I mean, if you carry your cell phone everywhere, you've got access to, to God's word. There's something special about having a physical copy, but the access we have to God's word is unlimited today. Um, wherever you are, you forget your Bible, you've got it on your phone. Secondly, get to know God's word and that's what we've been talking about here, really getting to know the word of God. I was thinking about on Saturday, we were at the Glenwood Outreach. Frank was just sharing about the, 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 that guy and that gal that we should be praying for. And we were sitting down with one of the guys. It was a newer guy. He had never, well, at least I hadn't seen him before. And we were just talking to, them, to him about Jesus. I was sitting with Ty Villers and we were just talking to the guy about Jesus. And Ty began to share with the guy. He said, you know, if you ever open up the Bible and the guy hadn't spent any time in the word, uh, hadn't heard much about Jesus. He said, it's God's love story to mankind. It's God's love story to you. From Genesis to Revelation, and it was almost like the, that guy's eyes lit up. And he was like, really? 
I really need to dig into it. And in their bags, you got the Gospel of John in there. And he said, go ahead and check it out. Try to read it. And it's just interesting to say, when you get to know your Bible, you get to know God. You get to know his love story. You get to know how he pursues you and provides forgiveness, salvation, and everlasting life. Get to know God's word. Uh, thirdly, take time to uh, apply God's word. I heard obedience. That's, that's, that's a great way. Um, whenever I'm digging through God's word, I've got a, an acronym. It's a terrible acronym. It's called Space Pets, all right? And so as you're going through, let me read them to you. S, is there a sin to avoid, forsake, or confess? P, is there a promise to believe or condition to meet in order to partake of the promise? As you're looking at the word, asking these questions, A, is there an attitude to change or guard against or an action I need to take? C, is there a command to keep? E, is there an example to follow? P, is there a prayer to pray or a, a priority to change? E, is there an error to mark? Say, hey, this is an error that I need to watch out for. Uh, T, is there a truth to memorize and meditate upon? And S, is there something to thank or praise God for? You want to get the most out of your Bible? Don't just read it and study it and consider what's the context around it, but ask the question, how can it change my life? Deal Moody, he used to write T and P in the margin of his Bible. Um, and so T and P, it meant tested and proven. And so to different scriptures, as he was going through the Bible, he would say, I put this into practice. I've seen this promise of God come to pass in my life. It's been T and P, tested and proven. What a wonderful thing to, to approach your Bible in such a way to say, the promises are true. The God of the word is faithful. I'm not just reading something that I'm going to walk away with more knowledge about. I'm going to walk away transformed. I'm going to watch God's word begin to change my life and anyone else who receives the word. And as was mentioned just now, share the word and it goes such a far ways. And so God, he begins to confront the unfaithfulness, the spiritual infidelity of his people, first by speaking to Hosea. Secondly, in the rest of our text, he speaks through Hosea. The reason he speaks to Hosea is in order to speak through Hosea. And verse 2 says this, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said, to Hosea. As a prophet of the Lord, he does not share anything more, anything less than the whole word of God. And God is going to share three things through the words that he's going to give to Hosea, the commands he's going to give to Hosea. Three things that he's going to demonstrate through his life. And the first is he's going to confront them about their spiritual infidelity through this first command. And he says this, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. I don't know if you read that and then thought to yourself, did I read that rightly? It's a strange command. It's a shocking command that a prophet of God is commanded by the creator of the universe and says, go and take for yourself a wife of harlotry, a wife of unfaithfulness. Take a wife who is a prostitute and is going to commit adultery in your relationship and then have children of unfaithfulness. What does it mean to have children of unfaithfulness? But this wife of his is going to have children that he may or may not know are his. As we're going to read later, he's going to have three children with her. 
The first, it is attributed to him, but as you look at the details, the text does not tell us whether the second and the third child belong to him. Two sons and a daughter. And if you marry a wife of harlotry, if you marry a wife of unfaithfulness, you don't know really is that, am I truly the biological father of that child? This was strange and this was shocking. It's not just strange and shocking to us. You can imagine how strange and shocking it was to them, not just to hear the command, but to see it. You know, Hosea, that prophet of God, (laughs) who hears the word of the Lord and declares the word of the Lord. He's a single guy and he's now looking for a wife and look who he walks in with, Gomer, a prostitute, a a woman who is going to commit adultery. And the question here is, you know, is this woman already a prostitute or committing, uh, or or, or is this something that, that will be anticipated? The text isn't clear about that. I tend to think this is an individual who he's taken. God has led him to marry her, and in some capacity, she is going to become an adulterous wife and is going to take part in prostitution as the story unfolds. But you can imagine the the reaction of the people as Hosea's walking around with his new wife, and perhaps she's familiar to others. And Hosea is walking around with his wife. They're shocked. Is, is this a, truly a man of God that he would marry a woman of the night? This guy who's going to marry this adulterous woman? And you know what God is saying to the nation of Israel? That's me and that's how I have pursued you. An unfaithful and adulterous people. I have taken you as my own. I have provided you the promised land. I've given you to inherit the land. I've provided for you physically. I've provided for you spiritually. I've declared, be holy as I am holy. I've given you my holy covenant. And I've said, as long as you obey me, serve me, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will be blessed and you will prosper in this land flowing with milk and honey. But in Deuteronomy 28, he also says, if you will not, you will literally be vomited out of the land, and he says, you have turned your backs on me. And as you hear the word declared by Hosea, and you see the wife that he has taken, and you see how his heart breaks and is grieved because of the unfaithfulness of his wife, so know my heart for you and how much it is grieved because of your adultery and because of your rejection of me. It really puts things into perspective. When we turn our backs on God and we turn to, for us, perhaps an idol of our choice, anything that becomes the top priority of our lives in the place of God becomes an idol. What you turn to or what I turn to in those moments of desperation other than God becomes an idol in our lives. And the reminder here is abandon those idols and turn to the Lord. God confronts their sin by telling Hosea, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, children of unfaithfulness. And then he tells them why. He says, for the land has committed great harlotry. You have turned your backs on God. You have worshipped these false idols, these false gods. 
Baal worship was the major problem that was going on during this time. Uh, Baal and the worship of Baal was, was a terrible thing because when you worshiped him, one of the means by which you did was you t- slept with the temple prostitutes. And so there was sexual immorality that was rampant, these false gods that they had turned to. And rem- let me remind you, this is a prosperous time in Israel's history. They are blessed beyond measure, and yet they still have turned their backs on God. And God says, take a look at my prophet Hosea. Hear the words that he speaks, but also take a look that, uh, at the wife that he marries and the pain that he experiences. And so God begins first as he confronts them, declaring the word through Hosea, confronts their spiritual infidelity, their spiritual adultery, how they turn their backs on God. Secondly, he declares coming judgment through the names of his children. He declares coming judgment through the names of the children. Verse three, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibleim. So Hosea does what the Lord tells him to. This is a prophet of God. He walks in obedience to what the Lord says, and she conceived and bore him a son. Pay attention to the details there. This child is his. It says, she bore him a son. Verse four, then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Now, each of these names is speaking of the judgment that will come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Let me remind you, you have the northern kingdom, you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jezreel literally means scattered. And what this is speaking of is the judgment that is going to come upon the nation of Israel. As they've turned their backs on God, God is going to cause the Assyrians to conquer them in judgment, and they will be scattered in exile and spread throughout the land. But Jezreel does not just refer to being scattered in the coming judgment. It speaks of the valley of Jezreel. And the valley of Jezreel, um, uh, prior to this, was a man by the name of Jehu. If you remember Ahab and Jezebel, wicked woman. Ahab was a wicked king of Israel. All of the kings of the northern kingdom were wicked kings. They were all evil. There were none good. Some in the southern kingdom of Judah were good. But Ahab and Jezebel, God used Jehu in order to bring judgment upon them. Let me read that to you in 2 Kings 10, 11. It says, so Jehu killed all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel. And so the, the, the judgment of the Lord came upon the house of Ahab through Jehu and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him none remaining. And so Jehu executed judgment by the will of God, by the way, in order to execute judgment. But as you read the narrative in 2 Kings chapter 9 and chapter 10, you see Jehu went above and beyond when it came to who he killed. In 2 Kings 10, 30 to 31, it says, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, he commends him, and have done in the house of Ahab that was, at, that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so Jeroboam is from the same family line as Jehu. And then it says, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. So God commends Jehu for executing judgment on the house of, of uh, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, but if you read 1 Kings chapter 9 and 10, great bloodshed takes place. And so God says this in the text, in sight of judgment, he says in verse 
um, verse, verse three, verse four. Well, let me start in verse four. Then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel and the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of, how, of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. What does the bow of Israel represent? The, their military power. In other words, judgment is going to come upon the nation of Israel. The northern kingdom, the Assyrians are going to come in 722 BC and they're going to be scattered as a judgment upon them. And let me just read to you 2 Kings 15, 8 through 10, where this comes to pass. Jehu and his family line, their dynasty is going to uh, come to an end. Jeroboam II, the one who's reigning over Israel during this time, he is a descendant of Jehu. Well, his son is Zechariah. And in 2 Kings 15.8, it says this, In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. So his son is reigning six months. In verse 9, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done all wicked kings in, the, in, in Israel. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That was the first Jeroboam. Right now is ruling the second Jeroboam. Verse 10, Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. After six months of reigning, he is assassinated, and the family line of Jehu comes to an end as God executes judgment upon them. So just to give you some background information there, God begins as he tells Hosea, name your first child Jezreel, so that the nation of Israel will know judgment is coming. As they have turned their backs on me, my mercy has now come to its to, to, to its final extent, and it's going to come to an end, and judgment is on its way. So name the first child Jezreel. Secondly, name the second child Lo-Ru-Rama. Verse 6 goes on to say, and she conceived again and bore a daughter. Uh, the details do not tell us whether or not this daughter belongs to Hosea told us that the son was born to him. It does not tell us the daughter was born to him. You can say you're reading a little bit too far into the details, but if you consider the ambiguity of the fact that this is a man who has married an adulterous wife, you can know when you look at your children, you'll never be sure. Is that my biological child when you have a wife who is committed adultery. And he goes on to say, uh, then God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhama. Uh, Lo means no. Ruham, or Raham, as it says, Rahama means mercy or love. And so what she is going to be named is no love, no mercy. You know what God is saying to the nation of Israel? He is rejecting her. As she has turned her back on God, God is turning his back on her. And he says, at least for the time being, because if we go to the verse 10, we're going to get there in a moment. You can save your place there. He's going to say, for the time being, you have been a rejected people. No, no love, no mercy. And so can you imagine some of these children walking around Jezreel, you know, <laughs> you know going through the names Loruama? No mercy. That's who you're messing with. Like, hey, I'm no mercy. How are you doing? No more love. And so these were the names, but it was a reminder 
to the children of Israel as they heard the names of the prophet of God to know that God has rejected his people because of their sin and because of their idols and false gods that they have worshipped. But God goes on to say, in our text, he says, um, for I no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away, verse 7, yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. So as the Assyrians come in, they are going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. The Assyrians will pursue uh, taking Judah, but Judah will not be destroyed. God will show continued mercy to Judah. He says, I will save them by the Lord their God. Isn't that interesting? Listen to the language there. He's saying, I am still the Lord, the God of Judah, but you, my love, is no longer there. My mercy is no longer there, at least for the time being. I will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or by battle, by horses or horsemen. In other words, when God delivers the nation of Judah from the Assyrian armies, it's going to be more than evidently clear that it wasn't man who did it, it was God who did it. And let me read to you the scripture where that comes to fulfillment. In 2 Kings 19.35, by the angel of the Lord, 185,000 Assyrians are killed. Let me read that to you. 2 Kings 19.35 says this, and it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the, cor there were the corpses all dead. I don't know if you can imagine 185,000 who've been wiped out by the angel of the Lord. This is our God. This is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. I don't want to be under his judgment. I don't want the Lord to turn to me and say, no more love. You are not my people in his rejection of them, but he has been merciful up to this point. You have to understand that. And he's demonstrated his mercy to the nation of Judah as well. But his, but his patience is going to run out because in 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and wipe out the uh, southern kingdom of Judah, and they'll be exiled for 70 years there. And so you have the second child, the daughter, whose name is no love, no mercy. This is speaking of the judgment of God that is coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the third child, we get to read about in verse 8. It says, now when she had weaned lo Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son. Notice it doesn't say a son to Hosea. And then it says, then God said, call his name lo Ami. Lo means no, Ami means people. Jesus, God is once again saying, you are not my people. He's declaring his rejection of them. He's saying, I'm no longer showing you my love and my mercy. You'll be exiled of, out of the land, at least for the time being, and you are no longer my people. You have turned your back to me. You now will face the judgment that will come your way. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And so God, through Hosea and through the commands he gives him, communicates first his confrontation of their spiritual infidelity. Secondly, he declares coming judgment that's going to come upon them through the three names of Hosea's children. But thirdly, aren't you grateful 
that God also promises a future hope. Judgment is right around the corner. The Assyrians are going to destroy the land. The people are going to be exiled out of the northern kingdom. But one day, God will restore his people. And listen carefully to what verse 10 has to say. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. Even though the northern kingdom of Israel, they're going to be exiled out of the land and they will be scattered, Jezreel, throughout the land. And even though God has rejected his people for a time, they will continue to increase in number. Where in the Bible does God make an unconditional promise to the children of Israel that they will be given land, seed, and blessing? It's called the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And so God says, I'm going to keep that promise. In other words, my faithfulness to you is not dependent on your faithfulness to me. And there's always a faithful remnant that God is going to preserve even in the midst of the judgment. And God is a faithful God who makes promises, and you better believe he will keep his promises. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, verse 1, then the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They are given three promises, land, seed, and blessing. All the nations who bless the nation of Israel will also be blessed. That was true back then. It's still true today. And God will keep his promise. And so we continue to read And so this is the hope of the future. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. They're going to multiply in number. They're going to be too many to count. And it shall come to pass in that place where it said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. God says there's a future restoration. For a time, I declare to you in judgment, you are not my people, but you will soon be called sons of the living God. In Romans, that's applied to Gentiles. Did you know that? And you get to hear the fact that as Gentiles, who are not part of the Jews, and not a part of the promises of Israel, have been grafted in, and we, who were not God's people, have an opportunity to become God's people simply by his amazing grace. And so the text in verse 11 then says, Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves a head. And so you have a a divided kingdom. You got the north and you have the south. And they will not be, and but one day they will be gathered together. And it hasn't fully been realized. And appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. You know, the people he said, lo me, you are not my people. He says, soon you will be sons of the living God. You know, those who were not loved by God, not shown mercy of God, the love of God will be restored to his people. 
and he says, Jezreel, it was once associated with judgment. Now it will be associated with greatness. And the day of Jezreel will indeed be great. And with the promise of restoration is this, um, in verse 1 of chapter 2, say to the brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Through the prophet Hosea, God confronts their spiritual infidelity. He says to the children of Israel, as the wife of Hosea grieves his heart by her adultery, so you grieve my heart by your spiritual infidelity. He doesn't just confront their sin. He says, I'm a God of justice and judgment is coming upon you, declared through the names of Hosea's children. You are not my people. You will not be loved, at least for a time. Judgment is going to come upon you and you will be scattered throughout the land. But then that final promise of restoration and it's told, one day those who were said, you are not my people, you will be sons of the living God. What a gracious and merciful God we worship and we serve. How does God confront the children of Israel with their spiritual infidelity? He speaks to Hosea and he speaks through Hosea. Let me conclude with some takeaways from our text from chapter 1. The first is this. God's heart is grieved by the sin of his people. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when his people sin, the heart of God is grieved by it. He considers himself to be a husband grieved by the infidelity of his wife. If God's heart is grieved by the sin of his people, our response is that of repentance. Forsake and abandon your sin and cling to Christ and him crucified. The reminder is here for us today. You know, we we would say, well, well, there are no Baal worshipers here today, I don't think. You don't go and sleep with the temple prostitutes. But we have our own idols that we worship. Anything that should take the place of God in our life as a top priority is an idol. I often say that a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing in our life. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a a foundational thing that we build our lives upon. If you have a wife or you have a husband, your husband, you may say, or my wife, because there's a movie that says, you know, you complete me, right? But your spouse doesn't complete you like God completes you. They compliment you. Uh, Your spouse cannot do for you what only God can do for you. And when you put that pressure on your spouse to do and give you ultimate fulfillment that only God can give you, you have an idol in your life. And so it's a reminder. It doesn't matter. It could be a relationship, a marriage, a family. A child can become your ultimate pursuit. When when that child gets in the way of your relationship with God, you're supposed to care for them and take care of them, but, but, but... But let's say, you know, let's say sports, for instance. Like, you know, I've got, we're missing church for the next six months because we've got all these different things that we've got to be doing. Those things can become idols, get in the way of our ultimate relationship with God. And so a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes a foundational thing. It's a reminder, abandon your sin, abandon your idols, and cling to Jesus Christ. Uh, Second takeaway, uh, God's coming judgment is sure. Now, judgment was declared for them in the form of the Assyrian army. We're reminded we live in a unique time in history when the judgment of God will come to all. Christ is coming back, and he's going to right every wrong. What's our proper response? It's preparation. 
How do you prepare for the coming judgment of the Lord by getting ready? Get, make sure you're, you're right in your relationship with Christ. Receive faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And you know how else you prepare? You tell as many people as possible how they can prepare. I wouldn't want to keep that to myself. The return of Jesus Christ is imminent. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He's coming the second time as a conquering king. We better be ready. We better be prepared. His judgment is sure. Thirdly, God's promises are trustworthy. God's promises are trustworthy. And so if his promises are trustworthy, whether coming judgment or restoration, we believe them and we respond to him in faith because we believe that he is God. Um, uh, fourthly, God's love is unrelenting and unconditional. And what we are invited to do when it comes to God's love is, is we are going to continue to read through Hosea is that we are to respond in our love to him. How do you express your love for God? You know, Deuteronomy, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What that's telling us is hear his word, heed his word, be fully committed to your relationship with God. If he pursues you with a relentless love, how much more should we pursue him? And as the text unfolds, we are going to learn next week, if you want to read ahead, in chapter two, Hosea's wife, Gomer, is going to enter into a terrible lifestyle and is going to continue to walk or live an adulterous lifestyle and yet Hosea is going to continue to pursue her with a relentless, unconditional love and we are going to consider what we continue to learn through that. If I could open it up for discussion for us this evening, um, what must Christians abandon in order to maintain our fidelity to Christ as our bridegroom? What must Christians abandon in order to maintain our fidelity to Christ as our bridegroom? He's the bridegroom, we're the bride, we are the church. What, what do we need to abandon as the church, as followers of Christ in our day and age? Yes, Steve? So just checking, who do I love more? The, word, the world or the word? And uh, abandon your love for the world and the things of the world, the temporary things of this world where moth and rust destroy. What else? How can we maintain our fidelity to Christ? What must we abandon? I'm just thinking about the church and the culture uh, we live in. What are common idols that present themselves inside the local church? Yeah, our schedules, and we're really busy. We're busy, busy, too busy sometimes to pray, too busy to read the word, too busy to make the things of God a priority, and uh, yeah, we're busy. Our schedules, we need to abandon that if it gets in the way of God. Anything else? We need to abandon, what are idols? Busy schedules. Yeah. 
of money. I think of money, I think of comforts. We are so comfortable. And we are so blessed and we are so prosperous, right? I mean, we have all of the, we get the air conditioning in the, in the summer, we get the heat in the winter. We are so blessed. And all of those comforts can hinder us from wanting to serve God when it gets uncomfortable. When it starts to rain, well, I don't know if I want to get out there today, right? <laughs> when, it, when, when there are challenges that get in the way of my, if, if I didn't sleep enough last night, you know, I still got to have a good attitude and serve the Lord and my circles of influence, the comforts of this world can easy get, easily get in the way. So I asked, what must you abandon in order to maintain your fidelity to Christ? What must you cling to to maintain your fidelity to Jesus? I mean, as a church, because the church is what we're talking about. We're just not talking about individuals. We're talking about the local church that is represented within the, the universal church. What must we cling to? The truth of, of God's word. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Cling to God's word. Cling to the truth. What else? Yeah, cling to Jesus, cling to our first love, the one who died for us, rose and provides salvation as a gift and he's coming back again. Cling to, cling to him, cling to his word, cling to his promises, cling to the truths therein. What else? Yes, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. So our relationship with God is, is personal, but it's not individual. Like as, as we go about the Christian life, we do it in community and we are to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together uh, and actually have genuine community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, not just gathering, but having loving and caring and bearing one another's burdens, certainly, yeah. Anything else? How can we maintain our fidelity to Christ? Yeah, Marianne. Sure, sure, sure. So it's a, it's a good thing when we have that time frame because it helps you stay on track. Yeah, yeah. Because busyness is a problem. Yeah, yeah, busyness and yeah, just our schedules. And so as we, as we wrap up tonight, may we maintain our fidelity to Christ. May we abandon those things that hinder our love for Jesus, our first love. May we cling to Jesus, may we cling to his word, cling to his promises and be reminded of our relationship with Christ. And no matter how bad things get sometimes because as, these, as Israel is going to be scattered through the exile, there's always that promise that one day Israel will be regathered and one day the head, there will be one head and of course we know that is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Um, and so let's pray this evening. Father, 
We are grateful for the introduction to the book of Hosea as we are reminded of who God is, a God who loves unconditionally, a God who pursues those he loves relentlessly, a God who holds us accountable in his justice, a God who is gracious and merciful, a God who provides hope in the midst of hopelessness, but above all, a God who remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. God, I pray individually and corporately as a local church that you would help us maintain our fidelity to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Help us, Father, to take our eyes off of the things of this world and help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Father, life gets busy, our schedules can get filled, but Father, we pray that we would keep first things first, that Jesus would be our top priority, the top desire of our heart and the top desire of our life, that he would be first in all areas. Father, as we head out, Lord, we just pray that you would encourage us in these things, and uh, we're grateful for them, and we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.